Well, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Woodworking is Bullshit, your favorite irreverent podcast that hurts feelings and asks the difficult questions about design rather than how to do things. I'm your host, Paul Jasper, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Eric Curtis and Mary uh, Sai. And today we have a very special guest. It's our first time we've ever had a guest, uh, Conrad Sauer. So Conrad, we want to say first and foremost, we're, we feel honored to have you. Um, you are, in my opinion, and you can sit there and cringe if you like a little bit, but one of the finest plane makers in the history of the world, because um, let's, let's face it, how many, how, how long have planes been made and how many people have made them at the level you are? I think you're one of Damn, only that's a bold. handful, and I would stand by. I, I stand by that, and I would absolutely say in the, that in the history of the world. In I would the say history so. Yes. of the world. <laughs> yes, okay. I would. All right, all yes. right. I'm not trying to take anything away from him. He's brilliant at what he does, but the history, the history. of the world is a long yes. time. Well, that's what I'm saying. So you're going to live with that, Eric. <laughs> now, uh, you know, Conrad. You know, it, it may be like you'd say, "Well, why would we have?" Uh, a quote unquote, and there's more to this, a plane maker to on the podcast to talk about design. Well, I think we know that if those of you who know Conrad know he's much more than someone who makes tools. He's had a long career as a designer and an artist, even though the artist label makes him cringe a little bit inside. And he is one of the most thoughtful and well-spoken people I know. So there's no pressure now. I've just set the bar unbelievably high. But you're someone who just every time we talk and I own one of Conrad's planes and, you know, that's sort of our, our gateway to getting to know each other better that and sending iron chic memes to each other on, in, on Instagram endlessly. Uh, you're someone who just loves to think and talk about design. And I notice we always just without even trying, we get into hour, two hour long texting conversations and we, we both have other things to be doing, but we just can't help it. It like oozes out of us right uncontrollably so i thought it would be awesome to have conrad as our first guest on woodworking is bullshit uh i know he shares a lot of the the same thoughts on on that as we do so conrad welcome you're our first guest and as always we start with a question and so we've asked conrad to pose today's question yeah well thank you for having me first off this is uh this is pretty cool um question slash statement is the world is full of ugly so if you're going to take the time to make something you may as well make it beautiful that's that's it i, like, I find no fault with that yeah yeah it's it's a lot of work making anything especially in the way that most of us are making things we're not you know we're not doing huge productions of things we're doing thoughtful, deliberate things. So take the take the time, make it beautiful. Great. Can I ask that a, is a skill question st- on on uh, different views of beauty and relevant to some audience members? Back maybe Conrad, what are your thoughts on river tables? <laughs> uh, it, the how much how much epoxy is in said river table? Oh, we're going, we're, well, I don't know. We can talk about any river table, but I was thinking, you know, the typical bright blue, lots of epoxy. The, the first time I saw one, I had never seen anything like that. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. And then 20 minutes later, <laughs> I was done with it, really. Over it? Yeah. yeah it's a, I mean, it's a neat idea. I, I And I can appreciate 
you know, that somebody integrated glass into a piece of wood and gave it a name that made sense. I get all of that, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really do much for me. If that's a strong opinion. <laughs> well, the reason I ask is because we had, there's like so many different definitions of what beauty is, I guess. Beauty is in the eye of its beholder, sure. but you know, sure. people who are really into her tables are, I, you know, like, there's different. But to me, it, it would fall more into the it's clever category rather than a beauty uh, category. Mm. I mean, that's, I, th I think that's maybe more of what it is. It's the same thing with epoxy to me. It's, it was a neat idea that somebody came up with at some point and it's been done 875,000 times too many since the first one. That's an interesting distinction that, that delineation between beautiful and clever, because that's not always. That's not, not always very clear, like which side of that line an object falls on. Right. So how do you approach that in your work? Because there, when you do a thing long enough, right, like you need to find new challenges and a clever idea can be an interesting new challenge. Sure. So how do you approach that in, in your goal to make beautiful objects um, when sometimes you, you come across an idea where you're like, maybe it's not beautiful, but damn it, that might be fun. Oh, yeah, make it once. If, if something is fun, absolutely do it. I mean, when when Joe Steiner and I wrote our business plan, the first thing we wrote was, "If this is not fun, this is not worth doing," and that that is still kind of rings true for me with with absolutely everything. There's it's it's too much bloody work doing anything. If it's not fun, don't even bother. So clever can be really really fun, and absolutely go, see where that goes. But you have to be able to look add it as you're working on it and make the distinction between is this, am I just doing this because it's just clever? Okay. I'm going to proceed, but I'm going to just leave it as a clever trick as opposed mm. to saying, I'm going to try and hang my hat on this for the rest of my life or, you know, whatever. Be I mean, beauty is a, I mean, you're right, Mary. It's a totally, it's a really difficult thing to pin down and it absolutely is in the eye of the beholder. But I know that, you know, you've got some training, you're an architect, you're an architecture, there are some principles of, you know, proportions and relationships and interactions with with various things that all start. I mean, those are kind of foundational things. It's a little bit like a chair. You know, a chair has got some really, really. Um, there's some pretty strict things about what makes a, a good chair a good chair. The angle, like, there's some really, really fine angles, and there's not a lot of room to screw around with those. And then it's a disaster. But once you've taken those rough ideas and those parameters, that's when you get to have fun and impart something else to it. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, what, what do you guys, how do you guys encounter the distinction between clever versus beautiful? It's, it's a hard thing to, to delineate. Um, I think the chair is an interesting example because then you can you can keep pushing on the the design idea of like what what makes a chair a chair, right? It has to be a certain number of inches off the floor. It has to presumably have a back. Otherwise, it's a stool, um, right. probably mortise and tenon joinery. But, you know, then it can be plastic molded as well. Like there's you finding your limitations, your creative limitations, and then trying to work within those boundaries, I think is, is maybe what distinguishes 
a beautiful object from a clever object, right? Like if you maybe find a way to push those those physical limitations or those physical boundaries of an object just beyond where they've been, right? Maybe I'm just shooting from the hip, but maybe yeah, that's no, no, what good. like that's where it's like it's an idea, and you're like, this could be really interesting, sure. but it doesn't necessarily have to be beautiful. But if you're working strictly within the boundaries of that white page then I think maybe you're like, this has to be exceptionally beautiful. Otherwise, maybe it's not worth making. Yeah, and, right. you can, and you can take something that's clever. You can take a clever notion or a clever idea and then work towards also making it beautiful. Like sure. they're not, sure. they don't need to be mutually exclusive. But, you know, and it, yeah, I guess in the context of, you know, something like an epoxy pour or a river table, it's, it's a clever idea, right? The, the, the big picture idea of, hey, I got these two hunks of wood. They've got an interesting edge. Let's kind of put them together and pour some shit down the middle and glue them together, right? That's a clever idea. And the cleverness really, in most cases, really outshines the beauty, other than maybe it's a beautiful piece of wood, which probably should have been used for something else. Maybe, maybe cleverness then in, in that particular instance, and I think this probably plays out over other instances, Maybe the cleverness is short lived, right? Maybe that's the right. problem with clever. It's the first sure. time you do it, it's clever. And after that, it's, you know, anybody can yeah, do it's it. Like, it's like it's a one trick pony, right? I mean, it, it, it right. yeah. All right. So now that Mary poked the bear and got us talking about river tables <laughs> and cleverness, uh, I'm going to pull the conversation back t- to a much more fundamental topic, which I think it is, uh, Conrad, I feel like you have some, some real, uh, let's say strong coffee thoughts about the importance of design and how it's chronically taking a back seat for many woodworkers. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it doesn't get, it doesn't get talked about very often because it's difficult to talk about it. Like it's because it starts, you know, venturing into the art side a little bit. And frankly, most woodworkers, um, you know, I mean, I've been really lucky that I've had, you know, almost 40 years to, you know, sink my teeth into making stuff. So I've had a lot of time to invest into it, but a lot of woodworkers are, you know, their schedules are probably sporadic if they're not, they're not doing it full time. Um, and so it's, it's difficult. It's difficult for them to, um, yeah, it, it, it just poses a different challenge for them uh, to, you know, be able to figure out how to, how to find the time to, to, to put it all together, I guess. Do you think there's a, a like a, a, a typical um, path that most workers follow where they learn how first and then the what? For sure. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah. and I think that's, it's easier. It's easier. Most people find it more comfortable or maybe easier to understand the technical aspects of making stuff. So, learning how to hand cut dovetails, learning mortise and tenons, learning wood movement, learning all of those, they're, they're really important. They're, they're absolutely important, but it's really easy to focus on those aspects mm-hmm. as opposed to saying, like I've seen lots of, you know, extremely well executed pieces of furniture that aren't really that nice looking. And so they've, they focused on only one side of the making of a thing as opposed to, okay, I need to learn both of these things. I need to, fo- I need to learn how to do all of these construction methods really well. But then I need to also figure out, you know, like go to a museum and walk around and look at re- most of the time really beautiful pieces of furniture 
and step back and try and figure out, well, why? Why is that particular dresser? It's not, it's not a style that I particularly like, but why is it still beautiful and why is it still well done? What is it about the proportions, about the material usage, all of those sorts of things? So I, I think that's, it's, it's just easier to focus on the technical stuff than it is on the, you know, talking about the design aspect of it. And I think part of it too is that nobody is, or very few people are taught the language of design and how to speak about it in a way that makes sense. So I've got a friend who um, is a fellow plane maker and we've spent, you know, an hour talking about the speed of a line in a curve. And he was working on this plane and he was sending me photos of it. And he was saying, look, I want to make this look faster. And he knew that I would know what he was talking about. And so we talked about where to change, where to change the curve to, to give it a little bit more speed. And hmm. that's, a, that's a very, it was an amazing conversation to have. And I really enjoyed those conversations. But it's, you, you have to understand a language to speak about things like that. Like, you know, something looks heavy, something looks light, something density, all of those sorts of things. Um, all of those emotions that get imparted through design. But that's not, that's usually not talked about, or it's not really a language or a use of language that most people are familiar with. And so it feels uncomfortable. So I agree with everything you just said, but in defense of the learner, I'm going to push a little further and say, I think maybe that it's impossible to learn the why without first learning the how, right? Or maybe, maybe impossible is too strong because there are folks who go to school specifically for design, <clears throat> Mary, and like learn the theory specifically. And then the, the, the how is almost like a, well, I don't, and I'm not saying Mary is an elitist in this way, but like there, there is that school <laughs> oh, of thought of like, <laughs> not only in that way, uh, but there's that school of thought of like, well, I'm the thinker. And then the people who make the thing they're, they're beneath me, right. Because sure. they do the thing. Right. But in, in, so I, I was a, a woodshop teacher for five years. Uh, so I taught grades five through 12 um, from the introduction to, to woodshop all the way up to AP studio art. And what I found in, I would say 95% or more of the students is you, they, they cannot imagine the boundaries of the page without first having explored the entirety of the page itself. Right. So if you right. try to explain to them these high minded concepts of like, let's talk about the speed of a curve. They're like, what fucking curve? They have to go make the curve with their hands first. And then mm. they start to manipulate it and see what they get wrong. And then you can go, let's have this conversation. Now you could also do a field trip to the parking lot at the school and say, let's go look at all the cars, right? Go find a Volvo sure, sure. and say what, what the shapes and forms of an old Volvo, you know, the, the rectilinear boxy ones, what does mm -hmm. that say, right? And then go look at a, I don't know, whatever, and, and, and just do that comparison. That would be a really good way of explaining in a real world thing in, you know, an hour, the difference between the, those, those coarse forms or even, I mean, hell, even just look at the school. Right. Look at the outline of the school. Is it a big, huge, tall, formidable building? I mean, you know, how, how do you interact with that? What impression does that give you? So there's all sorts of shapes all around us that I think you could use as a, you know, as a teaching tool to, to help illustrate, you know, why something looks the way it looks and why does it look good or why does it look bad? 
But again, it comes back to it comes back to the language of having those kinds of discussions. And I think that's unfortunately it's not really talked about or because it's a it's it's kind of a formal it's kind of a formal training. It's high minded. It's a it's a little bit elitist. I'm not going to lie. And this is all coming from people who really (laughs) enjoy this conversation. It's a little bit elitist. It's not okay, necessarily it's, I, elitist. I have thoughts on this. <laughs> Go ahead, Mary. Because, okay, sure, I agree that it's easier to uh, explore a new technique by learning, I don't know, technical skills and things. But uh, it's because being confident in your design decisions takes bravery and design is so subjective to people. Um, there's not a right or wrong per se. Like there are some people who agree more with one right or one wrong. Um, But it's so difficult for people who are not familiar with the field to come in and be like, oh, yeah, I can I'm like going to take the sleep of bravery to design something that's like completely out of the box. And um, instead of just like copying something that's existing. But like. I think for me, coming from an architecture background, it's a little bit different because we are taught, and I've talked about this before, we are taught to go, like, let your imagination run wild because the technical skills, like, like you you don't learn that in the first few years they even in architecture school like the first two years were just like concepts and thinking about looking at inspiration and thinking how what else can i do to just think about the general form and you don't learn about construction until later in like the schooling years um and you can't and it's like harder too because you can only work with these little models you can't actually build a building to test it out or think about the technique you work with other engineers who kind of tell you that and take other structural classes. So I come at it from, yes, it might take, it might require some formal training or it just requires some sort of confidence in yourself to, um, you know, say that, yeah, I think this is a good design. And if it's not, that's fine. But like pushing that boundary as like the first step is something that I like to stick to because I am not like technically um, like a very, very, very proficient woodworker. I just kind of know this is the idea behind my design and I don't know how to build this yet, but I will figure it out along the way. So I don't know, maybe that's, if it's elitist, that's fine. (laughs) I think, I I I mean, I, I understand where you're coming from with saying that it's elitist, but I also, I think that's got a, a negative, unfortunately, a negative connotation to it. And so I think of, you know, we've had people over before and they'll look at something and they'll say, you know, and they'll, they'll look at it for a few minutes and then they'll say, you know, ask me, well, why do I like that? And I'll say, well, what, what are you looking at? What are you seeing? And these are people who aren't, they're not woodworking. They don't do woodworking at all. And sometimes it's, it's as simple as saying, well, these two cabinet doors, the panels are book matched. So they match each other. And this is what book matching means. So it's like opening up a book. And it, yes, it may be elitist, but I think it's also sort of our job in a way to help educate people on why we are making these decisions. Like book, making a book, book match doors is no more work than doing, than making doors that have mismatched pieces. It's just, it's just being aware of what you're doing and recognizing that you're trying to get harm, something harmonious looking and something balanced. So, you know, and somebody will, you know, will go along and, you know, they'll wallow around in the weeds and they'll sometimes they'll just keep asking more and more questions and want you want to hear about, you know, you dissecting 
other things around in your home or outside or anywhere to explain like I, my experience has been most people actually enjoy looking through somebody else's eyes because it's, it's just not something they've ever experienced before. And mm. yes, it is. It, it can't, I mean, it depends how you go about doing it. If you're a jackass about it, of course it's elitist in the negative sense, but you know, if somebody's just genuinely interested, that's an amazing opportunity to explain, you know, a, the, the, a different way that maybe you walk through the world and see things. I think this so, is a, one of the things, Eric, do, Eric, I was going to change go ahead, topics. Go do, do, do you have, you're, you need to say it. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I know I can feel it. Maybe he can't because he's frozen. <laughs> well, in that case, no, 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 I can no, 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 so, uh, Conrad, what, I was just... one of the things you said to me uh, in the previous... Oh. <laughs> Are you back? Okay. I'm back. Uh, one, Conrad, one it. of the things you said to me in a previous conversation about the importance of design was this... Uh, you used this analogy that I'm not sure a lot of us have heard exactly, which is one plus one equals three. So could you elaborate on that? Yeah. So... And that kind of goes along with with most people are familiar with one plus one equaling two. So that's a very um, you know it's a very simple mathematical. That everybody understands it's it's easy, it's simple. But if you tell somebody one plus one actually the goal is to try and make one plus one equal three for um, for really really technically minded people that doesn't really compute very often. But really what you're, I think what you're trying to say, or what I, when I say that, what I'm trying to get at is um, that unknown strange element to a piece that is just particularly interesting, particularly well done, that exceeds, your, that exceeds everybody's expectations. You have taken these two things, this one plus this one, put them together, but it has come out and become way more than what you would imagine or think that those two things combined would 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 make so it um it intrigues it delights it um it, it just draws people in i curtis i remember you talking about a table that you had done that when and you had wanted somebody the, the goal was that somebody would experience it all the way around the table uh. and then you you had somebody without any prompting on your part they did that right to me that you in that moment you that's an experience of you've taken one plus one and you've made it equal three because that person experienced something far outside what their expectations were but you your goal was to impart that feeling or that emotion or that result in that table and for me that's always i mean there's lots of different ways that you can do that it can be with little you know, little touches, little thoughtful touches that you, you put in it, like on the, you know, on the back of a drawer. So nobody, you know, so nobody might see that for a hundred years, but you put it there anyway, because damn it, this project this particular, for whatever reason, it lent itself to having that little thing there. Um, so that's, for me, that's always kind of a goal is how do you, I guess it goes back to, you know, the world is full of ugly. How do you, you know, make, make everything beautiful? This is also, I guess, a component of that, of always try and always try and impart something extra in it. Um, 
at the expense of additional time at just just because just because mm. you know hopefully it, you know enough of the things that we pour our heart and soul into are going to outlast us and someday somebody may discover it and go wow that is really a cool thing and it might it might just be a fleeting moment but frankly that's enough those fleeting moments are not nothing though right no like they're that- not it's an interesting it's an interesting way to phrase it this kind of one plus one equals three right this is greater than the sum of its parts right like yeah. the, the way that I phrase it or the rule that I have is the object always comes first right so it's it's the same concept right it's exactly what you just said it might be a tiny detail on the back of a drawer runner that nobody's ever gonna see except for the, like, that one time 72 years from now where some kid pulls it out and they notice a thing, or maybe it's a secret drawer somewhere where they just yeah. like, they stumble upon it and their mind is blown. It's a waste of time. It's completely uneconomical, but right. for some reason it matters. And I can't, it's ineffable enough where I can't quite articulate why it matters, but it is, it's those small moments of joy that make the object greater than just an object. I think it makes it this is probably this could be a whole other podcast but i think what that is getting to and speaking to is the value of the story that is imparted into the object because at the end of the day it is all about the story and it's all about the story mm-hmm. because that is the mechanism by which we human beings connect the most completely is mm-hmm. That's how we relate to one another is through yeah, we're storytellers by nature. Story. That's right. And we're, yeah. we're, we are physically making stories, but then there's also a, you know, a, a, an actual telling of the story of that piece to the customer or by way of some other description that makes it a much fuller experience. Again, that's equaling the, the attempt or the goal is to equal three. I love I it. I think the, 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 oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, it relates back to our conversation last episode of what is craft versus art. And we were saying that like art usually tries to have more of a, a narrative and a story behind it, but I don't know. I, what, Conrad doesn't consider himself an artist. Is that what I... No, he just didn't like that label. We were talking the other day and he said, some little part of me inside cringes when we use the art artiste. That's... That's because artists take their planes out in the middle of the river and light them on fire. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know what? It, it may very well happen. <laughs> well, we could try it. it, it um, will so, burn. Paul, your plane will burn long and hot. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. There's high BTUs like, in that plane. It's because I'm hot. All right. So moving on. So, <laughs> I, you know, I feel as though we've talked about the importance of design and, and the goal of design, one plus one equals three. And by the way, I just want to say in biology, there's something called synergy, which is a real thing inside your cells. Uh, that's just a small uh, snippet um, where, uh, you know, two pathways converge. And rather than being the sum of those pathways, it's a multiplicative of those pathways. So I, as soon as you said one plus one equals three, I'm like, well, it may, may not make sense to a math person, but this is rife within living cells, this kind mm-hmm. of synergistic pathway. Uh, anyway, so that's about like the importance of design and the goal of design. And so then I think a lot of listeners would say, oh, that's great, Conrad. That's very inspiring. One plus one equals three. We're going to make something more than the, you know, the sum of its parts. We're going to delight. We're going to 
uh, enthrall people with our amazing design. And then the question is, well, how? Like, how do you go about designing and how do you marry that to the methods? Do you design first with the methods in mind or do you design first with no regard for methods at all so that your mind isn't in a cage? So what's your view on that? You always, from this little person's perspective, you always, always design first and then you figure out how to do it because the other way around you, you are, I mean, you know, any, any time you're making something, most of the time there are constraints. So whether it be furniture or architecture or anything, there's usually constraints somewhere. And so you're, you're having to work within a framework most of the time. Um, so yeah, if, if you then limit yourself with all sorts of other constraints about, well, this, I only, I only know how to do a dovetail. Well, then everything is going to look you're, you're going to be led. All of your work is going to be reflective of that one thing that you know how to do, as opposed to saying, well, this is what I want to make. I want it to look like this or function like this or do this because that's what I, because that that's going to produce the thing that I want to produce, then figure out, okay, now how do I go about making this? And so that can be, I mean, in our, for most of us, that's going to include wood or mostly be wood, but you can, you, you can go back and start thinking about other materials because other materials might lend themselves more to whatever it is that you're trying to, to make. But the, the design first thing, I mean, that, that is something that, that came through um, back when I was in school. It, it was, you know, and that, that was back when there weren't computers used in design. It was still stat cameras and... Um, you know, what would be considered archaic tools now, but it was all done by hand. And so we had way, we had way, way, way more tools that are disposable to design or to execute a particular design. And then we had to figure out, well, what was the best way of going about it? And then a computer showed up and that was, it was amazing, but it very quickly became the only tool that anybody was using. And surprise, surprise, everybody's work starts looking the same. Because it's all, yeah, you, it's all coming from the same place. Nobody is designing first and then going, oh, yeah, you know what? This part of this project, a computer is a, an amazing tool to use right now. Great. I'm going to go use it. And then I'm going to switch back and do a full-scale mock-up out of you know, cardboard and something else. So it, 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 it was just a tool as opposed to the tool. So hmm. That's where I think that's been a really big challenge, I think, for the idea of design first and then figure out how to do it has been this incredibly powerful tool, the computer that we have um, that is really, I I mean, I I see it a lot. It, It really has changed how people even think about what can be made or what should be made because it's because it's a it's a limit. It's got limits to it. And, and their understanding of software, sometimes that's the limiting factor. And so everything starts looking the same because that's how far they've gotten in a tutorial on, you know, whatever. It's interesting that you bring up the computer and its limitations right away, because as soon as you started talking about that, there's this thing. And I don't know, Mary, you may know uh, something about this working in AI and in computers, but there's this problem with um, monsters in movies being all the same that like they have the same visual vocabulary they're all more or less identical and they're just mismatched like which parts are being put where 
but it's the exact same conversation because you're using this base of this is what the computer program can do and nobody's willing to pay an artist the time and uh, money that it takes to create these mock-ups, go through these variations and create, I don't remember what the, the, what the tangible props, whatever the vocabulary is they use for that. Uh, but it, but it creates this new limitation. That's I think so new that we're not able to break those boundaries yet. Right? Like we've essentially turned the page and opened a new blank page and we haven't gotten to the borders right. of that eight by 11 just yet. I think it will happen in time. I have enough faith in humanity that we're, we're going to get bored with what these programs can do and create something interesting and new, but we're not there yet. And it all is in the furniture world. It's all very much the same because people are just, this is, this is what I call the echo chamber of social media, right? People see in the river table is a perfect example of this. People see somebody right. made this, this was successful, so I'm going to make this. And then it just perpetuates and creates this feedback loop where everybody's making the right. same damn things and nobody's doing anything interesting. Because if you do something interesting, there's a chance, like Mary said, that somebody's going to tell you it's bad and you don't have enough bravery to be bad for a minute. But like that's right. that's the risk although, you take when you're trying to do something interesting. Yeah, although usually, usually the way that that goes is like for, for me that the... the the, the other component to design first and figure out how to do it is is also um, when you're when you're making something you're working ideally and I've made choices to allow myself to work this way I'm working for one person or a couple or a very small group of people I they are the only people I am beholden to so as long as I am focused on making what is right for them or appropriate for them I don't give a shit what anybody else thinks. Because they're my client, they're my customer, and that's a, another distinction between. And Paul and I spent, you know, probably a couple hours this morning texting back and forth about this: the difference between a designer and an artist, and and though the the difference, the, the differences and similarities between them, but the perspective, the difference in the perspectives that they have, is really di- is quite different in, in a lot of cases. Um, Ex- explain that. Like, what do you see as the difference between the two? Um. I think I think a lot of designers are, which uh, that that's probably how I see myself. Like I, I actually really like the problem solving component that comes with design. Like I like a, when a client comes to me and says, "I've got this fourteen foot wall and I need a cabinet that's twelve inches wide. What do you do?" Right. That's that's a problem solving exercise. And it's, it's a lot of fun. Artists generally, ha- as the artist friends that I have, they would describe themselves and say, well, that doesn't work for me. I want to make what I want to make um, because I'm moved mm. to make it. Which, hey, fill your boots. That's totally fine. But, but for me, I, I actually enjoy the interaction with a, with a client and a customer. And, and I, I enjoy kind of those parameters and then trying to figure out how do I make something that fits within that, that is, that A, fits within that, it comes in on budget, um, it, but, it, but then also can be beautiful. Then how do I impart something that works for the client, get a sense of who they are, what they're about, why they think the way they think? I mean, part of it is also some of the times they don't even know what they want or they're asking mm, what they're asking you. A lot of the times. Make, yeah, what they're asking you to make isn't actually what they want. So you've got to you've got to kind of know what questions to ask to figure out okay what they what do they really want 
or what do they yeah. really need or what would be the more, a more appropriate solution for them? So that a lot of it is, I mean, you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. I mean, that's the other, you know, and the customer actually isn't always right. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> oh, no, it's just no. More often than not, they're they're very incorrect. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think the other thing that, that that Paul and I touched on with um, you, you know, with we were one of the things you we were talking about was designers because they're used to working within those you know kind of a restricted or confined area are usually better at kind of the the ability to run a business, the ability to deal with all of the other crap that that it takes to do any of this stuff. Like and and design training or architecture training or or really any kind of formal training like that really does introduce the idea of of structure, of patterns, of organization, all of those sorts of things that then when you get around to, yeah, I really, really hate bookkeeping, but I know enough to know that I got to figure out how to do it. So I'm going to figure out how to work within that. I think the training or the skills that a designer has tends to let, tend to lend itself more to kind of running a business a little bit more successfully or, or higher hopes of being successful at it. Whereas, you know, the stereotype of most artists is they tend to be a little bit more flaky. They don't really like the details very much um, and they just want to create, which is great. But you, if, if that's the route you want to go, you have to recognize what often comes along with that, which is, you know, some maybe some really lean months or years when, you know, the spirit has the spirit hasn't moved you and you haven't come up with anything new. Well, that, mm. again, that's fine, but it's so that's kind of the distinction. I guess designers they already have the client, so then they're they're kind of working within that. Whereas an artist, often the motivation is, you know, here's this thing I've made. Let's see if I can find a buyer for it. Okay, it's fine. I'll start my own business if that's what you're saying. <laughs> Convince me. <laughs> yeah, Mary, I feel like he's speaking your love language with design right there. Oh, oh for yeah, sure. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's like my my real- day job versus my night. Not, I mean, I don't know. I would still consider myself a designer. Your night job? Really Tell us more about but- that. Whoa. That, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, man. But no, I mean, I agree. I like a different context too, especially like as the like business owner, but I come from side where I work with, you know, larger companies, there is a problem that I'm solving. And also the audience is so large as opposed to like one or two people I'm like trying to make this for. And that's all I, I need to focus on. And I think that also has given me a bit of a thicker skin of just being like, I don't care if some people don't like this because I know that uh, the majority will like it and I will right, solve right. it if I have to. Like, I, uh, I, I literally, I go through this all the time with video editors because video editors are so stubborn and so like, yeah, just ordinary in their way of this is how I work. I'm really old school. I don't want to ever change. I don't ever want to think about anything new, especially my job, which is like all these new features. But I don't know. It's uh, I'm always going to be displeasing someone and I have learned to be okay with that. And I think that helps me evolve as an experience as a designer. Um, yeah. And I'm okay. With, I'm a lot better with getting. This is a really interesting so, distinction. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you know. Back when back when I was designing, we would, you know, I would always go back and reread the brief 
because that was the rule book that that was the playbook and it was it was a really was really interesting to have and so you know go, you know going forward 20 years I still do that in the sense that I'm still I'm very constantly touching base with the client with the customer because yeah. I just want it and I'm said you know I send photos as I'm making their widget or I mean even in cases they'll come over and I'll involve them as much as they want to be involved in the making of their widget if they're that if they're interested and a, a surprisingly number are which is great um, and that's yeah. all part of it that's they're they're vested in it then I was gonna say like that's kind of why I work in these I guess like kind of two ways of working so in my day job it's very much trying to fit the problem fix the problem and there's all of these really intense like extreme limitations so many edge cases I have to solve for and a lot of the time that's frustrating but ultimately the best satisfaction as a designer is fixing everything yeah. where it sol- it covers every all of those issues and you do have like a really good experience you have a really great design and outcome but then in my like when I'm making furniture on the other side I think I release a little bit of that frustration too cuz sometimes I'm like I don't care what you want I'm just going to make what I want because right. I deal with so much of those limitations every right. day right like right. pardon me just like I I don't care just you can buy it or not I don't care yeah 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 yeah, no, that's very sense. sick of your bullshit. So, uh, Conrad, one of the things you mentioned earlier, moving from you know how we talked about how to design, you know, design first and methods later, and I totally agree with that. Um, you started getting into about the uh, using the computer and potential pitfalls uh, during design. You talked about how using the computer and in particular some computer software packages actually influences our design as opposed to having a wide open brain. Uh, and you've also, you and I in previous conversations have talked about a math obsessed world and you use the term rectilinear, which means like square, you know, cor- sharp corners. And this bears on uh, something that I did some research on and we talked about in a previous episode, which is what do humans prefer more, rectilinear or curvilinear? <laughs> yeah. And there's a, there's a whole body of research on this. And I actually have gone in PubMed and found the research and read the papers firsthand. And, and uh, because, I mean, how else would you know? Um, I'm not an elitist who went to art school like me. Uh, so, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, and Conrad went no, to design no, school. I, he, he studied art in <laughs> art in high school and then he did, he, he did design. Uh, anyway, um, uh, rectilinear versus curvilinear, there's a big, big uh, literature showing that humans prefer curves. And so uh, what do you mean by, uh, you know, a math obsessed world? And do you really think that computer software is sort of a pitfall in the design process? It can be like, it, it can be from the standpoint of I, most people prefer to interact with curves. It's just in, in so many, in, in so many ways, obviously, you know, a table needs to be flat. You do need some of those services, but when you've got yeah. the option curves, just, they are use often visually more interesting. You can have more fun with them. They can be a little bit more playful. Um, and, but curves, curves aren't as easy to do on a computer. It, it, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I learned the first version of Adobe Illustrator when I was in school. That's what I cut my teeth on when that came out. And it was frustrating as hell, but also amazing that it could, you could draw perfect circles and things like that. And as it got better, you could kind of chunk things out. But you, 
if you want to if you want to think in terms of curves, getting onto a computer usually doesn't lend itself to thinking in terms of curves or to just, you know, just think as far as think of anything. Like don't, you know, don't pin yourself down. It's really good at drawing boxes. And so surprise, surprise, most things end up looking like boxes or little boxes next to big boxes or proportions of, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But a lot of, a lot of what is being made looks quite similar to everything else that's being made. And I think part of that is because um, the computer is such an incredibly powerful tool, but it's, again, it's, it's being viewed, unfortunately, as the only tool as opposed to just a tool. So, you know, if somebody has to design a garbage can, most people um, are going to get onto a computer. They're not going to get a big piece of paper and turn it into a cone and start manipulating the way that cone opens or closes or squish it to make an oval and realize that, oh, this is actually not, this is a really complex ellipse that this is just, this shape has made or punch in one side. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a completely different approach to it. And I also think um, the act of taking that piece of paper and turning it into a cone and doing it maybe close to the right scale, the right size of the thing that is your goal, you get a, so much more insight, I think, it helps feed that design process, the act of turning that piece of paper into that cone-shaped object and screwing around with it, putting it on the desk and looking at it versus putting it on the ground where most garbage cans are. You get, you get to walk through all of those sorts of experiential things that, you really are, that are really difficult to do when you're looking at a two-dimensional screen. Yes, you can draw it, you can render it, you can draw the shadows, you can do all of that kind of stuff, you can turn it, look at it every which way from Sunday. Um, but I, but I, to me, it's, it always feels as though it's a step removed from, um, the experience and the act of the making of the thing and the experimenting with the thing. So I have a question. How many of you use computers in your design? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Conrad, you do? Yeah. It's, oh, absolutely. Hmm. I, I, I love it. They're I a mean, useful every, tool. every single, yeah. every single plane there are components that are drawn in Adobe Illustrator, but they, that, that's only a phase that they go through. They're all drawn by hand, but I know. And I think that's that's a key distinction though, right? It, that absolutely. It's a phase. I think that is a really important thing because folks want to render the, they want to have all of the information beforehand. Yep. And this yep. is a hard thing when you're working with clients mm -hmm. to sell them on this is like, I'm giving you an incomplete idea. Right. So what I do in CAD, and maybe you do the same, uh, is I will get all of the necessary functional information, right? The structural information. I'll figure right. out where my joinery needs to fall. I'll figure out how the actual box is going to go together. I'll figure out how the base of the table, whatever the thing is. And then everything else is an artistic process of, I don't know where this is going to go, but this is where it's headed. And then if it needs to take a left turn, it can, because that's information you can't get in a CAD program. Or right. maybe I should be more generous and say, I don't have the skill to get that information in the CAD program. And I sure. imagine your planes are very similar. Yeah. I mean, like I'm, like I said, I, I mean, I, I do them in Adobe Illustrator, like a component of them. So I start off, I draw it by hand and get, get the kind of the course forms, right. And the, you know, all of those kind of rough proportions, right. And know, okay, well, this one's got to be 13 inches long and it's got to be this because, you know, on a hand plane, you've got some really, 
if your hands are too far apart, it feels shitty. If they're too close together, it feels shitty. There are some, like a chair, there are some really sensitive sorts of height dimensions. There's some sensitive relationships that you don't really want to screw with too much. And I see people screwing with it all the time because they just don't know any better. Um, mm. So I know that I've got these certain things that I've got to hit or these certain areas or interactions I've got to hit. So then, but then everything else after that, that's when I, that's the candy store. That's when I get to have fun. So then I'll go into Illustrator and I'll take my drawings. I'll, I will quite literally take a photograph of a drawing, dump it into Photoshop, clean it up, dump it into Illustrator, draw over top of it, print that out, get tissue paper, put that over top and redraw over it. And I'll just rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And then I'll make a mock-up, like a full-scale mock-up, get my hands actually on it. So it's an, it's an invaluable, incredible tool, but it is just, it's just playing, it's just playing a, a, you know, a reasonable role in a much larger process. But I think a lot of people get hung up on, um, well, I've got to I've got to render the whole thing accurately and consistently. And th the problem is that a computer it's too perfect. It draws too perfect. Like I love the fact that a pencil line has got some movement to it, and I can. Are you going to mm -hmm. go for the inside of the line or the outside of the line? Are you going to split the difference? Like, which what portion of that curve are you going to use? There's lots of times where I'll draw hand draw a curve. I'll take a photograph of it, and I'll be damned if I can redraw it on a computer. I just you can't I do can't it because there's something about the quality of the actual line. So how do you then I'm making a plane with it. It's going to become an edge. How do I capture what that pencil line felt like? So that's, you know, that's where a little bit of the wizardry comes in or whatever you want to call it. Maybe it's just experience of knowing, all right, and this goes back to that fast line, right? Or a slow line, the line, how do you speed that line up? What was it about the quality of that pencil line that looked so great that you want to keep? And then knowing how to kind of dissect it and figure that out. Interesting. Uh, Mary, do you use computers? And to what extent? I think you know the answer to this, but... Uh... Yeah, I might know it, but the listeners don't. <laughs> yes, I, I do. Um, although I do start out sketching and I have so I used to sketch in a notebook and now I do all of my sketches on an iPad which has been a little bit of a transition I would say but I like it because um, the canvas is infinite saves space and it just makes I think there's a lot more options that I can do um, it is interesting like how they have tried to replicate hand drawing on iPad using the pencil because it's like the angle of the pencil and right. then there's the, the shades the pressure that you use it's like almost there but not quite but it's gonna i i mean it's good enough for me but i definitely agree with what well, you're even, saying even the i mean the big one for me is the resistance of the paper like right. i'm kind exactly. of picky i'm picky about my paper because i yeah. want to know how much resistance it's going to give me so that I, when i'm drawing it's not going to wipe off so how mm -hmm. do you use when you're using an eye drawing on an ipad do you find that as convenient then to like in a sketchbook you just flip back some pages and you you know whatever do you find it as convenient to use, to go back and look at other drawings that you've done? Yes, because something I really like doing is I like copying and pasting all of like my shitty sketches that I've done, mm -hmm. or even some nice like variations and putting them all on one page and being able to compare. Whereas like if they're in a notebook, it's a little bit harder. I would like take photos and maybe hold them side by side. So I like that aspect. I think they're the the, yeah, the iPad digital aspect allows for a little bit more flexibility in the way that I work. 
Mm. Um, but then I do move towards, and I, I usually model it up in um, in CAD because that's just what I feel comfortable with. Like I, I like I'm someone who plans out everything, so right, right. that helps me plan out what's the order of construction that I'm going to be doing, um, and just like what are the details and um sometimes i'll even do like this fine details like this is like a half inch round over versus like sure, a quarter yeah, yeah. Yep. it helps me plan like yeah I, I know exactly what i need for that day and i have to do that because i work in a shared maker space so right, I, right. so if you're like are you are you drawing out like are you dimensioning mortise and tenons and dimensioning mm -hmm. dovetails and things like that yeah on a, on a computer? I mean, yes and like sometimes if I don't think it's necessary, um, then I might not. But for the most part, yes, because I just, I'm, I don't know. I come from a background where I just did details literally all day for many years. Yeah, so. yeah, no, no, I get it. I'm, I'm just curious. So, like, you know, I've got stacks of sketchbooks and, you know, I'll usually just hand draw, like, all of the joinery. Like, I'll, I'll kind of know where they all go. And I, but I'll literally do an isometric drawing and just hand draw it out and dimension it out that way. But I, so I'm, I'm just curious as to how you, how, how you are working that. And like, I'll often have, you know, like if I'm, you know, on a, one of my workbenches, that's where all the drawings will go. And that's sort of, so I can get a really much bigger view of the whole thing. And I'm, I was, that's why I was asking about the iPad, if that allows you to kind of go back and looking at multiple, how easy it is for you to go forward or back in your library of, of images or drawings. Yeah. I mean, that's why I like it. I like the ability to just very quickly flip through things and also compare different variations. Right. Right. That's like, for me, the first thing I do is edit artboard, make it huge in Illustrator. <laughs> just because I can do <laughs> I mean, the same thing. Yeah. 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 Mary, I use an iPad Pro as well, and I, I don't know that I could be without it now. In fact, no. I find this is really embarrassing, by the way. The double tap to undo and erase, uh -huh. I found myself, I was at my workbench drawing with a pencil, and I hit with two fingers on the piece of paper. I felt so fucking stupid. I did it. And I wish I could say it only happened once. It's happened many times now. I'm so into the undo because you know just getting that right that shape right just anyway it's an ipad pro with an eye pencil and i tried a bunch of pc this is not sponsored by apple this is not an app for apple i tried a whole bunch of pc i tried a whole bunch of pc versions and pc pens and they all sucked and everyone's gonna say well you didn't try this one i don't know apple got it right with their with their ipad yeah. pro and their eye pencil anyway um now one of the one of the other things connor we talked about previously was how you know in line with the computer uh is like sort of a preoccupation with math a math obsessed world and then that led to a discussion about well are you using like your math brain or are you using your art brain and do you use both is it are, are you leaning one way more than the other is it is it good to have both brains um, oh, it yeah. seems like the answer would be yes, right? Because yeah, use, your art brain to, use your art brain to design the thing and your math brain to execute the thing, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's um, most people are usually biased one way or the other. I mean, they're, they're stronger in one than the other. And um, it's really helpful if you can, if you recognize which side of that you fall on and then actively try and bring the other up to speed um, because there are so many times where, you know, if you're doing, there are so many technical aspects to 
you know, making things, right? Like, so for me, for plane making, a bed angle has to be completely perfect matching with the blade. If it's not, it's not going to work properly. So there are certain points where um, I've got to be absolutely spot on or when a, a handle fits into the rear infill, like a quarter thousandth of an inch is the wiggle room I've got. Like it, it needs to be that close. But then, you know, so I'm, I'm using that, you know, technical mathematical, nope, keep going. You got to hit this. This has got to be spot on because of the way those parts interact with each other. But after that's done, then I'm just shaping the handle. And that's the part that I really enjoy because it, it, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not using little jigs and I'm not using a router. Like I'm just drawing some really quick layout lines and I mostly ignore them anyway. Um, but just, you know, grab rasps and files and start shaping. And I'm, go I'm working by eye and I'm working by hand for what feels right. Because the reality is that that's what's going to be interacting with it is other people's hands. So I'm a lefty. So I have to be really careful that I don't introduce a left-hand bias into anything. Um, so I'm constantly, you know, when I'm shaping a handle, my, my left hand on, my right hand on, I'm not looking at it. I'm just feeling it to see how it feels. Um, because it's really, really easy to... It's really easy to introduce a bias because of handedness. Most and okay. that's something that lefties tend to be more aware of than right-handed people, just because the world is so right-hand oriented that you know we we're just a little bit more aware of handedness, I guess. Um, so, you, do you uh, customize the handles for right-handedness or left-handedness? I, I I do make them. I make them neutral. I see. Okay. Uh, because there are lots of times where you'll switch. Like I'll just play, I'll play, play right-handed because it's easier than just walking around the bench or doing something different. I'll just hold it differently. Or if, mm. yeah. So, but I wanted to, yeah, I, I try and make it as neutral as I possibly can. So that's a case right. where I'm not using math at all. That to me, that's more of an artistic approach to it is just, you know, shaping it till it feels right. And I'm, you know, I'll get, you know, harsh light, I'll put it up to harsh light and roll it to watch the way the curve rolls around the corner. If it's got a bit of a wobble to it or something, then I'll know that something's not quite right. So there are lots of design tricks or, or design-oriented ways of approaching things that you can use, you know. But that's just that's using your eyeballs and light and um, things like that. It's not it's not really so much about math. So I'm not you know I don't have a whole set of radiuses that I'm using at you know, various parts to make sure that it's symmetrical. There's no way it's actually mathematically symmetrical, but I don't care. Do you make planes for different size planes for like men and women? Yep. Interesting. What about you, someone? I get, like, I, I, long hands, pardon me? Really long well, if someone like me who has really, really long fingers. Yeah. So I would ask for a photocopy or uh, a scan of your hand with a ruler Oh. and then adjust accordingly. Wow. The other, but the other way of doing it is always to find out what planes are you using? What do you mm. find comfortable? What do you not find comfortable? And what is comfortable or uncomfortable comfortable about it? So I'm guessing that, um, like, I've got kind of medium-sized hands, um, which, you know, I, I've, I've made planes for, for generally, usually they're men with really humongous hands. And so I've got to scale things to accommodate them. Um, but you know, and I, but I've, you know, when my kids were little, I would have them try things out just to see, you know, how does a small hand fit into, you know, what, what, when is a handle just too big? Mm -hmm. Because there's always a little bit of latitude and some wiggle room that you've got. 
The other, but another one that, that I was really surprised by was the thickness of the material I'm using plays a massive role in what's comfortable. And, you know, Stanley handles, they were using four quarter stock. So they're, mm-hmm. they're always under an inch thick and an inch and a 16th to an inch and an eighth is sort of a perfect thickness. But that means you're using oversized stock and you're wasting a lot of material unless you're doing what I'm doing where I'm getting a big chunk of wood and I'm resawing everything out of it that I need. So you, then you've got that control over it. So it's, it's all sorts of stuff like that. I mean, ergonomics is, I mean, that's a whole other aspect to all of this, to making stuff and, but also making furniture that, you know, is, is also something that doesn't get, I mean, it's, it's pretty near and dear to almost every tool maker I know, because that's, we're dealing with that all the time, but furniture too, has got a lot of ergonomic components that, don't seem to get talked about very often. Mm-hmm. Oh, Paul, are you muted? Yeah, well, design doesn't get, sorry, I was muted. <laughs> design doesn't get talked about very often, so I'm not surprised ergonomics goes by the wayside. So, uh, Conrad, you know, our last topic, uh, we're going to wrap up soon this episode. We're already at an hour. I don't know how that went by so fast. Also, but Eric the last thing. technical issues. He's not just being yeah. rude. <laughs> no, Eric's been in and out of the of the episode for the last 10 minutes. That's why I haven't heard him. But um, Conrad, I want to wrap up on the 80-20 rule and your thoughts on that. Yeah, so the 80-20 rule uh, came out of a, an experience with my family um, where uh, a member of my family was quite proud of the fact that uh, their goal is only shoot for 80%. Anything after 80%, if you get to 80%, that's the sweet spot. And for I'm trying to keep this neutral so that I, this person will remain anonymous. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, my sister and I are, are, my youngest sister and I are wired very similarly in that we tend to always be asking the question, how high is up and what are we capable of doing? And so for us, the idea of deliberately stopping at 80 seemed completely insane. And my, my sister looked over, when, when this person was explaining, you know, how proud they are of this 80% rule, my sister leaned over at me and mouthed the words. She was so... Had the exact same reaction. <laughs> yeah, she was just so floored that that would be, that would be a place to settle. And for me... Like getting, getting to 80% is an achievement for sure in, in, in most things, but it actually isn't really that hard. Lots of people can get to 80 with a little bit of time and a little bit of effort and some work. So that's a B minus. And yeah, exactly. The Asian side of me coming out here. Like yeah. Oh, Mary, a lot of people are happy with a B minus these days. We've gotten soft, <laughs> collectively soft. So for me, like I want to know. Oh, Eric's back. Hey, everyone. Eric decided to come back. Just in time for C plus. <laughs> for me, I want to know. I want to know what I'm capable of. Like I want to know. I want to find out what when I am the limiting factor. When I like so for me, you know, if you want to use the analogy of, you know, standing at base camp looking up at Everest, you don't know. You know, most lots of people don't make it. I mean, they are now with helicopters and all sorts of other horse shit. But, um, you know, 
you're, you're standing at the bottom of base camp thinking, do I have what it takes to get to the top of this thing? And it's a hell of a lot of work to, to do that. And, but I want to know, I want to know, am I capable of, and you, you, you make an attempt and you don't get there and you come back down and you figure out what to do to go back, to try and go back up again. So the other, I guess, part of using this analogy is if you actually do get there, if you do finally get to the top, the really amazing advantage of standing at the top of Mount Everest is you get to look around and find out where is the next mountain peak. So then you, you can climb down. A form of can... elitism? Pardon me? Would you say it's a form of elitism? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> full circle, full circle. Um, but that's that's always the goal is to figure out you know, what am I capable of? And then you, and if you get there, if you find yourself getting there, grab the bar and push it. I'll see if you can push it a little bit higher. Just, just to know. Because it keeps things interesting and it keeps you challenged. Otherwise, you know, yeah, it, I, I don't know. That's, so for me, that's always been the, the way of approaching it. And, and so for me, it's, it's the last, whatever you want to call it, 10%, 20%, 5%, 3%. part that's the most interesting. Because that's when, and, and you are well past the point of diminishing returns. You are not doing this because it makes economic sense. It is a, it is a personal, it is a personal um, bend that you are a personal way of being wired. Um, hmm. But I've found over the years that the, the other people that I run into that are even wired similarly, there tends to be a really interesting kinship that gets sort of formed because of that. And we all kind of help each other along. And um, when, when somebody has some success in something that seems impossible, you know, being invited, you know, hearing about that is really, really amazing. Um, and so, you know, you kind of do that with each other and for each other to kind of help each other, help each other along and help each other figure out how to get to the top of, you know, whatever it is you're trying to get to. Well, Conrad, very inspiring. <laughs> very elitist and very inspiring. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to upset a lot of people, which is the point of this. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, really. Thank you for your thoughts on all this. You know, the, every, your view on design. I love you. Some of your analogies are going to stick with me, and I think that's why we do this podcast, right? I mean, we all have design thoughts, but I'll always be thinking about one plus one equals three. Now, you know, I've been sort of reflecting on that because it's such a easy thing to remember as you look at in your work and you sort of self-critiquing and you know it never occurred to me that well, computer... no, we didn't even talk about critiquing we didn't <laughs> uh we we will we, we'll pick that up another time we'll, we'll we'll have conrad back and we can talk about how to, how to learn how to critique because i think that's a long topic but um you know another another thing that you talked about that i hadn't really considered is the influence of computer software on our design that's I hadn't really that thought. I mean, maybe I knew it in the back of my head, but it certainly was never crystallized like that. So right. I really like that. I really like uh, the points you made on that. And I, you know, because we're at the hour, we're going to wrap up now. Uh, we'll do this. We'll save the slide for the after show for whoever is. Uh, we're gonna... No, no, we're going to save it in the after show. <laughs> oh, I, uh... <laughs> 
I have it. Don't worry. I have it. He'll hear it in the after show for all of our Patreon supporters who get the after show. So with that, uh, Conrad, I want to thank you again for your, um, your amazing, uh, experience, viewpoints, intellect. You're, you're a phenomenal maker and I feel very fortunate to have you, uh, chat with us today. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. All right, everyone. We'll see you in the after show. Bye. Bye.